0: I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. My climbing film, Peter in the Columns, featuring Hans Florian, released last fall through the Yosemite Facelift Film Festival. Gripped Magazine, Canada's Climbing Magazine, featured it. Climbing.com featured it. Outside, Mag Rock and Ice. I worked with filmmakers Max Buschini and Andrew Peterson primarily, but also with assistant cameraman Ben Madrid, a good friend. So that film release went well. We were excited about it. I loved the process. It was a weird thing to be followed around by cameras, but it was a cool experience, and Hans Florine and I had a lot of fun working together, filming together, racing against each other. So after that film, Max Buschini, the Yosemite filmmaker, and I talked about doing a second film, a short film, called Climbing at Night. We were going to work with the company 510, which is Adidas, German company. But the thing is, COVID kind of wrecked that film process. We kept talking to the rep, and there kept being delays, and everything was kind of in disarray, and so we finally decided that maybe it wasn't going to happen. But we'd been talking about climbing at night, filming at night, and so I talked to Ben Madrid, who'd worked on the first film, and asked him if he wanted to do a film called Climbing at Night with me. Then I wrote up a new script, and we decided that it was going to be a COVID hope film, so we worked with Jordan Cox, a musician, and he put together a soundtrack, I put together the narration, Ben Madrid shot most of the footage, Max Buscini had a little bit of the movie's footage, and we put the film together. And in the end, I think it worked out pretty well. Outside Magazine featured the release, it was up on climbing.com we felt like we got a lot of views and we got a lot of positive feedback. So then I went back to Gripped Magazine, who'd featured our first film. And I talked to their editors. And I said, hey, we've got this new film. It's a COVID hope film. The message is basically like, yeah, this last year was really tough. But there's hope. The metaphor is that we've all been climbing alone at night through this last year through the infections and the deaths and the isolation, quarantine for some. But it also gave us a moment to think, a moment to be alone, to be idle, and to be blessed. So we felt like it was a pretty positive message, Ben and I did. And Jordan and Ben and I were happy with the product. We got featured in some newspapers and all that kind of stuff. But, when I went back to Grip Magazine, the editors watched the film and they loved the quality, they liked the metaphor, but they said, we gotta be honest. The film's a little tone deaf. Because, while in North America, everybody has an opportunity to be vaccinated, in the rest of the world, that's not true. While in North America in the United States or in Canada, we can pretty much end the pandemic anytime people go for the vaccinations. We can end the pandemic anytime everybody decides to be fully vaccinated. But in the rest of the world and in many developing nations, vaccine percentages, total vaccination percentages are less than 1%. So in the United States, we have people turning down the vaccine. And in other nations, they don't even have the opportunity to get the vaccine. And the editor said, you know, in rural Brazil, so many people are dying. In India, so many people are dying. And the film sort of signals that we're coming to the end of the pandemic. And it's always a bummer when someone says you're tone deaf. I appreciate it because I like good, harsh feedback. But it's sad because I think of myself as a somewhat socially conscious person. I think I'm somewhat aware. But I realized after talking to these editors at GRIPT that maybe I'm just a privileged American. So if you have five minutes... Please go to Outside Magazine and search Climbing at Night or Climbing.com, search Climbing at Night Madrid Films, or if you want to find it quickly, go to YouTube and watch our backup copy, Climbing at Night Madrid Films, and let us know. Let us know if we were tone deaf. Let us know in a comment on this podcast if you feel like we were too privileged and too American, or let us know if the movie meant something to you we'd appreciate it. I was reading again this week. I know, it's an addiction. You're sick of hearing about my reading, but I can't stop. Honestly, I don't sleep well if I don't inhale just a little bit of book right before I close my eyes at night. Also, slow weekend afternoons are just a little bit too slow if I don't inject a few pages each day. Books, and more books. My wife, Jay, comes in with the mail and asks, Did you order more books? Uh, no, I say. It was probably sent to the wrong address. Or maybe somebody sent me those books as a late birthday present Father's Day. Here, just leave those on the table. I don't even need them. I probably won't even touch them, let alone read them. And if I did read them, for the record, I could quit at any time. Jay walks away and I open those books, smell the printed pages, close my eyes, inhale, hold those books in my shaking hands. Thankfully, my drug dealers, some people call them authors, they fully support my habit. Not only do they supply my drug of choice by writing, but they even justify my addiction. Mark Twain supposedly once said, the man who does not read good books has no advantage over the man who cannot read them. So if you choose not to read good books, you're basically choosing to be illiterate. It's as if you never learned to read at all. And the author George R.R. Martin once said, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. So I was busy living a thousand lives this week, definitely not just feeding an addiction, and I read this incredible section of Zadie Smith's essay, Attunement, about Smith hating Joni Mitchell, the singer. Absolutely hating her. Hating her voice and her music, until suddenly Zadie Smith had an epiphanic moment when she finally understood Joni Mitchell. And since Zadie Smith and I share the same addiction, er, passion, books, novels, stories, I'll read aloud to you from Smith's essay. I should confess at this point that when I'm thinking of Joni Mitchell, it's blue I'm thinking of, really. I can't even claim to be writing about that superior type of museo epiphany which would at least have the good taste to settle upon one of the minor albums that Joni herself seems to prefer, Hejira or the hissing of summer lawns. No, I'm thinking of the album pretty much every fool owns, no matter how far from music his life has taken him. And it's not even really the content of the music that interests me here. It's the transformation of the listening. I don't want to confuse this phenomenon with a progressive change in taste. The sensation of progressive change is different in kind. It usually follows a conscious act of will. Like most people, I experience these progressive changes fairly regularly. By forcing myself to reread Crime and Punishment, for example, I now admire and appreciate Dostoevsky, a writer who well into my late 20s I was certain I disliked. During an exploratory season of science fiction, I checked Aldous Huxley out of the library despite his hideous racial theories. And even a writer as alien to my natural sensibilities as a Anais Nin wormed her way into my sympathies last summer during a concerted efforts to read writers who've made sex their primary concern. I don't think it's a coincidence that most of my progressive changes in taste tend to have occurred in my sole area of expertise, reading novels. In this one extremely narrow arena, I can call myself more or less a connoisseur, meaning that I can stoop to consider even the supposedly lowliest examples of the form while simultaneously rising to admire the obscure and the esoteric, and all without feeling any great change in myself. Novels are what I know, and the novel door in my personality is always wide open, but I didn't come to love Joni Mitchell by knowing anything more about her or understanding what an open-tuned guitar is, or even by sitting down and forcing myself to listen and re-listen to her songs. I hated Joni Mitchell, and then I loved her. Her voice did nothing for me, until the day it undid me completely. And I wonder whether it is because I am such a perfect fool about music that the paradigm shift in my ability to listen to Joni Mitchell became possible. Maybe a certain kind of ignorance was the condition. Into the pure nothingness of my non-knowledge, something sublime, an event, beyond beneath consciousness, was able to occur. I just call myself a connoisseur of novels, which stretches the definition a little. An expert judge in matters of taste. I have a deep interest in my two inches of ivory, but it's a rare connoisseur who does not seek to be an expert judge of more than one form. By their good taste, they are known, and connoisseurs tend to like a wide area in which to exercise it. I have known many true connoisseurs with excellent tastes that range across the humanities and the culinary arts, and they never fail to have a fatal effect on my self-esteem. When I find myself sitting at dinner, next to someone who knows just as much about novels as I do, but also somehow also found the mental space to adore and be knowledgeable about opera. Having strong opinions about the relative rankings of Renaissance painters, an encyclopedic knowledge of the English Civil War, of French wines, I feel an anxiety that nudges beyond the envious into the existential. How did she find the time? On the shortness of life, a screed by Seneca, is smart about this tension between taste and time, although Seneca sympathizes with my dinner companion, not with me. The essay takes the form of a letter of advice to his friend Paulinus, who must have made the mistake of complaining with an earshot of Seneca about the briefness of his days. In this lengthy riposte, the philosopher informs Paulinus that learning how to live takes a whole life. And the sense most of us have that our lives are cruelly brief is a specious one. Seneca writes It is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it heedless luxury, socializing, worldly advancement, fighting, whoring, drinking, and so on. If you want a life that feels long, he advises, fill it with philosophy. That way, not only do you keep a good watch over your own lifetime, but you annex every age to your own. By the toil of others, we are led into the presence of things which have been brought from darkness into light. So make good friends with the high priests of liberal studies, no matter how distant they are from you. Zeno. Pythagoras, Democritus, Aristotle, Theophrastus. None of these will be too busy to see you. None of these will not send his visitor away happier and more devoted to himself. None of these will allow anyone to depart empty-handed. They are at home to all mortals by night and by day. Well, sure. But you have also to be open to them because you needn't have had even a whiff of whoring in your life to legitimately find yourself too busy to find or visit Aristotle. Busy changing nappies. Busy cleaning the sink or going to work. And since, in the contemporary world, we have to place in, quote, liberal studies, not only a handful of canonical philosophers, but also 2,000 years of culture, plus a bunch of new forms not dreamed of in Seneca's philosophy. Polish cinema, hip-hop, conceptual art. You can understand why many people feel rather pushed for time. It's tempting to give up on our liberal studies before even making the attempt. The better to continue on our merry way, fighting, drinking, and all the rest. At least then... We have the satisfaction of a little short-term pleasure instead of a lifetime of feeling inadequate. Still, I admire Seneca's idealism and believe in his central argument even if I have applied it haphazardly in my own life. He writes, We are in the habit of saying that it was not in our power to choose the parents who were allotted to us, that they were given to us by chance but we can choose whose children we would like to be. Early on, for better or worse, I chose whose child I wanted to be. The child of the novel. A few years ago, Jay, the girls, and I We're staying in Yosemite Valley for a couple weeks. And we were moving around so we could extend our stay. So we were in the pines and then Camp Boar. And we decided to stay in Curry Village for a little while. Two nights in the Curry Tent Cabins, which is now Yosemite Village. And the location's wonderful. There's meadows and wildlife all around. Half-dome hanging above Curry Village. There's a stream that cuts through. To the Merced River. There's bouldering, two minutes walk away, hiking, exploring. The only thing is, it was June and the bears were incredibly active, especially one bear, Yellow Tag Bear Number 12. The girls went to buy ice cream one day and Jenny and I explored into the forest a little bit and we ran into Yellow Tag Bear Number 12. Some sorority girls from Virginia left their bear box open for two minutes, and yellow tag bear number 12 was there, on it, eating their food. Then there was a big commotion on the east side of Camp Curry, and it was rangers firing rubber pellets at yellow tag bear number 12. That bear was everywhere. And at night, we were especially careful because that bear was roaming around just after dark, just trying to find any food that was left out by anybody since there were fewer people out and about. One night, Rain was reading Rue to sleep, tucking her into her bed, our older daughter reading to our younger daughter, and I had to go to the bathroom before bed. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to dip out and go to the bathroom. So I left our little tent cabin and went to the communal bathroom As I stepped inside, there was an Australian man and he was against the wall and he was terrified and he was kind of like shaking. And I was like, Are you okay? And he was like, There's a bear, mate. And I was like, A bear? And he's like, Yeah, mate, a big bear right there. And I turned around and looked out the door that I'd just come in and there was no bear. So I ducked my head further out, looked around, and there was no bear. And then I stepped out to the tree that was maybe five feet from the door and right behind it was yellow tag bear number 12. And he took a step towards me and I backed up and I ended up huddling in that bathroom for about 10 minutes with that Australian. And we waited, wondering if the bear was going to come in or if the bear was just going to wait for us outside. And then we didn't hear anything. We looked out the door and we didn't see anything. and looked behind that tree and didn't see anything. And I said, I think he's gone. So the Australian man and I decided that we would leave at the exact same time and run two different directions. And hopefully the bear would have trouble choosing which one to follow. So we counted down three, two, one, and ran two different directions. And I don't think the bear followed me, so he must have followed the other man. And I got to the door of our tent cabin, and I stepped inside, and just then, the light on the east side of the tent cabin showed a big bear walking by, kind of like a shark in deep water, just his shadow, and I realized he'd followed me. So yellow tag bear number 12 was what they call over-socialized. He'd learned that humans bring food, Americans bringing the most food since we eat the most food, so now he simply foraged human areas for meals. And then we talked to the rangers, and the rangers had already moved him out of the valley once, and he'd returned. So now he was in danger of being euthanized, since he had no fear around people. He was three times as strong as a man, they said. Three times as strong as a man his size, and he weighed a solid 300 pounds, so he was strong as a 900-pound man. So they had to move him again, or they had to kill him. Those were their only options, which made me think of a question, why do we get to decide? Why do we get to decide what to do with an animal? Why are we more important than animals? I mean, why do we get to move bears out of the valley instead of bears moving us out of the valley? And that made me think of the writer, Ed Abbey, who once wrote, if people persist in trespassing upon the grizzly's We must accept the fact that the grizzlies, from time to time, will harvest a few trespassers. This was years ago, but I love animals in the natural world even more since my brain injury. And while I don't hesitate to admit my love, I do hesitate to admit my brain injury. I mean, maybe it's just foolish pride or trying to be strong always or... Maybe it's that admitting weakness is not wise in our culture. Or maybe I worry because I know I'm not the same as before. I do feel the pressure to highlight my strengths. Want me to tell you all the things I'm good at? I feel like I should do that. But the truth is that I'm an injured animal. So I was thinking, and maybe I'm the bear now, And the car that collided with my head caused a long-term injury to my bare brain. I mean, it's not like I died. It's not like I limped off into the forest and passed away and the coyotes and the turkey vultures scavenged my carcass. The yellow jackets finished the last bits of meat. And the sun bleached my bones. That didn't happen. It's not like that. Instead, I slowly healed or mostly healed my bear brain. And I'm capable of certain things now, of being a social bear, for example, communicating somewhat well with other bears. I'm capable of being observant, of watching the workings of the natural world all around me, of seeing patterns and connections. And I'm good at foraging, I'm pretty good at that actually, scrounging random food like the lunch I ate out of the garbage can in the park two days ago. I'm still pretty good at protecting my young too and climbing trees and rocks. I'm pretty good at rambling along happily, but in other ways, the injury has aged me as a bear. After the accident, I felt instantly older. I get confused about where I've been and how many times I've been there and when I went there. I don't forget what we growled about, but I might come back to a conversation in loops and growl about the same things again. And maybe I don't quite hibernate correctly. I don't take care of myself the way a healthy bear should. I don't notice all the variations in temperature. Maybe cold doesn't warn me the way it's meant to warm, warn a bear. All days are the same day in my injured bear mind. Also, there's this. Sometimes I teach the young. Sometimes I'm wise. Sometimes that's true. But oftentimes the young teach me. I learn from them as much as they learn from me. So I'm just a part of a community now. I have trouble being an important bear or an in-charge bear. And there's this. I can't work hard all day long, at least not without stopping. I used to, but now I have to rest more often in the forest, or rest next to a river, or rest in a cave. I have to take more quiet bear time for myself. I might be able to work a full day with other bears, as long as I can break it up, Close my eyes multiple times, step away from the group, rest for, say, 15 minutes every few hours. And, and I know this is a bad thing to admit, sometimes I forget what kind of animal I am or why I'm supposed to be an important animal or the most important animal. Some days I don't feel as important as other bears. And I certainly don't feel more important than other bears. And along the same lines, I never really feel more important than other animals. Wolves, for example. I don't feel more important than deer or more important than garter snakes, or more important than crows or scrub jays. And certainly, I 100% never feel more important or as beautiful as magpies. I heard a man talk the other day, and he said, Well, men have dominion over animals. In fact, he said, animals were created for us. And when I heard him say that, I threw up a little bit in my bear throat, but then I swallowed the vomit and made a very, very neutral bear face, because I knew we weren't talking about animals anymore. I knew we were talking, instead, fundamentally, about this man's religion. And I stayed neutral on that topic, because religion can be very confusing for bears. cultural critique reminds me of this one section of the Swedish novel, A Man Called Ove. And to understand the battle between these two Swedish friends, you have to understand that in Sweden, the car of the people is a Saab. Saab is the only car that a reasonable Swede would drive. They're not Germans, damn it. So I'll read aloud to you here. Is no one prepared to fight for their principles anymore, Rune had wondered. Not a damn one, Ove had answered. And then they set a toast to unworthy enemies. That was long before the coup d'etat in the Residents Association, of course, and before Rune bought a BMW. Idiot, thought Ove on that day. And also today, all these years after, and every day in between, actually. How the heck are you supposed to have a reasonable conversation with someone who buys a BMW? Ove used to ask Sonia when she wondered why the two men could not have a reasonable conversation anymore. And at that point, Sonia used to find no other course but to roll her eyes while muttering, You're hopeless. Ove wasn't hopeless, in his own view. He just had a sense of there needing to be a bit of order in the great scheme of things. He felt one should not go through life. As if everything was exchangeable, as if loyalty was worthless. Nowadays, people change their stuff so often that any expertise in how to make things or how to make things last was becoming superfluous. Quality no one cared about that anymore, not Rune or the other neighbors and not those managers in the place where Ove worked. Now everything had to be computerized, as if one couldn't build a house until some consultant in a too-small shirt figured out how to open a laptop. As if that was how they built the Colosseum and the Pyramids of Giza. Christ, they'd managed to build the Eiffel Tower in 1889, but nowadays one couldn't come up with the bloody drawings for a one-story house without taking a break for someone to run off and recharge their cell phone. This was a world where one became outdated before one's time was up. An entire country standing up and applauding the fact that no one was capable of doing anything properly anymore. The unreserved celebration of mediocrity. No one could change tires, install a dimmer switch, lay some tiles, plaster a wall... File their own taxes. These were all forms of knowledge that had lost their relevance. And the sorts of things Ove had once spoken of with Rune. And then Rune went and bought a BMW. The book's great. I mean, Ove's kind of a grumpy complainer. He's been forced into retirement. And his wife, who's his best friend, she died six months ago. So yeah, he's pretty grumpy. But I sort of understand him. When I was reading that, I had to ask myself, do we have skills anymore as individuals? And sometimes it's the little things that make you wonder. The other day I said, let's go to the east side of the river island. And my daughter, Rue, said, Dad, no one except you thinks of north, south, east, west anymore. But I don't know if that's true. Do people still glance at the sun to know the direction? Or look at the moon? Notice where it's arcing through the sky? Or do people look at the stars to make sure that they're oriented? Do people still do that? Or do we not do that in our culture? Thinking about this makes me think of another question I just had. Last night, Jenny was watching a movie and she fell asleep. The movie was playing on a TV channel. And afterward, a TV show came on where a big guy with dark hair travels around the United States and takes on eating challenges. So in this one episode, he goes to a famous Italian restaurant in this kind of smaller town, and he tries to eat 10 entrees in under 90 minutes. He's forking in huge mouthfuls of food. He's struggling and sweating, and the crowd in the restaurant is cheering him on, as he's trying to cram delicious, well-made food into his mouth. He's talking about strategies for choking food down, for not vomiting afterwards, and for pacing himself as he overeats. And because I am who I am, I thought, wait a second, is there something wrong with a culture that has celebrity binge eaters on television who eat A lot of food, way too much food for an incredible amount of money, sweating and choking good food down on television while in the same nation, 42 million people experience food insecurity every single day. Is that a problem? As I was finishing recording this episode of the podcast, two of my favorite people in the world, Jansen Mazziotti and Jacob Shelton, asked if I would officiate their wedding this fall. Jansen made a homemade t-shirt that she painted with puff paint, and it said, Bedro, will you marry us? And then they signed it with their nicknames that I call them, Love Timberlake and Pac-Man. So this episode of the podcast is dedicated to Timberlake and Pac-Man, two of my favorite people. I'm excited to marry you on September 18th. And to all of the other listeners, thank you so much for listening today. Please give this five stars and recommend this podcast to one or two other people today if you like this episode. Thank you for supporting The Boring is a Swear Word Podcast. And my...